Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host for this episode, Avishai Artsy. Kabbalah is one of the most sacred and perhaps least understood parts of Jewish tradition. Shrouded in secrecy and mystery, it's often associated with elderly rabbis with long white beards contemplating the nature of God and the mysteries of the cosmos, or Hollywood stars seeking enlightenment by meditating on words and phrases found in ancient scripture. Kabbalah is a set of esoteric teachings that originated in 12th to 13th century Spain and southern France and were reinterpreted in 16th century Ottoman Palestine during a renaissance of Jewish mysticism. These teachings, often passed on in secret, attempt to explain the relationship between an infinite God and the finite universe. The word Kabbalah can be translated literally as that which is received. Followers of Kabbalah trace its origins to the earliest chapters of Jewish history. It is also a part of the Jewish tradition that was secretly transmitted at Sinai, supposedly, according to generations of Kabbalists, which is also a blueprint for the creation of the world. So it really deals with the secrets of the creation, thus had to be transmitted through generations of initiates. This is Clemence Bouluk. I'm an associate professor of Israel and Jewish studies at Columbia in the Department of Religion. The secretive nature of Kabbalah is essential, says Hartley Lachter. I'm an associate professor of religion studies at uh, Lehigh University and the director of the Berman Center for Jewish Studies. Kabbalah sought to explain why Jewish rituals mattered and how human actions impacted the world. Hartley says that Kabbalists believe that God revealed these teachings specifically to the Jews. And that suggests that it's not rational knowledge that can be derived the way mathematical knowledge is derived, but instead it has to be revealed by God. And as such, when it's been shared with a particular group of people, that knowledge that they have is exclusive. In this episode of Adventures in Jewish Studies, we'll look at Kabbalah's many lives, from its influence on the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, to the conflict between the rational and the mystical in Judaism, which contributed to the development of psychoanalysis and the concept of the subconscious. And we'll see the ways in which Kabbalah has been utilized in the present day through recent New Age commercialization. There is a kaleidoscope in what Kabbalah has to offer, which is both very ancient and extremely modern and even postmodern. And this is this endless source that I think is worth returning to. Kabbalah, as we'll learn, takes on many appearances and serves many functions. To read Kabbalah is to get a window into the pre-modern Jewish imagination. Kabbalistic texts feel almost unrestrained and creative and endlessly surprising. Um, you really almost just don't know what a Kabbalist is going to say next. And so if you want to see like Jewish creativity with very few boundaries, as far as I can tell, Kabbalistic texts do a wonderful job of providing insight in all these ways in terms of uh, how Jews articulated and understood the world and their place within it, how they use the imagination to inhabit a world of meaning. And that when we see these ideas continue to sort of be picked up and developed and adopted and appropriated over time, it suggests that there's something powerful and useful about those ideas for Jewish people as they try to understand their place in the world. 
To try and better understand what Kabbalah is and some of its organizing principles, I want you to imagine for a moment a tree with a sturdy trunk and lots of limbs reaching out. It's this image, the tree of life, that is most commonly associated with Kabbalah. Instead of a trunk and branches, though, it's a diagram made up of ten circles arranged in three columns connected by lines or paths. The circles on the right are associated with masculinity, on the left with femininity. The top three are referred to as the head, and the bottom seven as the body. These circles represent the nature of existence, of humanity, and of God. One of the most common doctrines associated with Kabbalah is the notion that God is comprised of ten luminous entities, or spherot, which isn't connected to the word of spheres or spheres of the heavens, but has to do with these luminosities, these entities that enumerate or narrate, that recount the secret inner life of God, and that when Jews perform commandments, these spherot bind together and bring blessing into the world when they commit transgressions, the opposite happens and it withholds blessing from the world and causes all kinds of catastrophes, that these spherot emanate from the highest source of the divine transcendent self, the Ein So for the endless. This is a key concept in Kabbalah, that our actions, good or bad, affect the world and affect God. Kabbalists believe in an infinite God, Ein Sof in Hebrew means without end, and that we are all part of that infiniteness, and therefore our actions contribute to the creation and the undoing of the universe. The spherot that make up the tree of life are connected by channels through which God emanates energy to mankind. The idea of a co-creation, or at least some human agency in Kabbalah, if your actions are actually reshaping or uh, being part of the God hand, there is a part of humanity that has some leverage somehow. This idea that the actions of humans somehow had an influence on God was a pretty remarkable development. Medieval rabbinic Judaism was very traditional, but when the Kabbalists came on the scene in the 13th century, they advanced a new understanding of God as both one but also embodied in the Ten Sefirot, and they put forward a totally different reason for following the commandments in the Torah. The performance of the commandments isn't simply the fulfillment of divine decree, but also has this power, scholars refer to it as theurgy, the human actions that influence the divine realm, both to sustain divine unity by uniting the ten spirot, and also to sustain the cosmos. The idea of theurgy, that humans have an impact on the divine, gave medieval Jews a new vision of themselves and their role in the world. And for many of them, this was how they understood how Jews move through history, that Jews are actually the secret agents of history, despite Christian discourses that treat Jews as kind of the, the passive subjects of history, or actually even stuck in an antiquated past following a superseded religion, refusing to acknowledge and move forward through time by accepting Jesus. Jews who embraced Kabbalah saw their practice of Judaism as the thing that moves history forward, as the thing that sustains the fabric of being, and that by performing Jewish law and through, as they understood it, using their sort of knowledge of Kabbalah to have really powerful theurgic impacts on the divine realm, that this is what would move Jews towards their ultimate messianic redemption. This is what brings the different aspects of God together in a perfected unity. And they saw this as a process of rectification of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as well as further damage that's been done by ongoing Jewish transgression, the sin of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. All of these things they saw as part of the process of how Jews 
move through time and how they, through the practice of Judaism, actually move time forward. Kabbalists believe that this idea that humans could join God in a sort of unity to be partners of God, so to speak, was always present in Jewish history. Some Kabbalists believe that this secret power may have been given to Moses on Mount Sinai, transmitted to Adam in the Garden of Eden, or even provided to various people from the prophet Elijah. Kabbalistic thought didn't just impact Jews and Judaism, though. Christian scholars in the Renaissance also sought to connect Christ to the Ten Sfirot. Those Ten Sfirot were quickly reclaimed by Christians who saw the Sfirot, and especially the upper ones, which, you know, conveniently there are three of, and they were uh, seen as Jews' refusal to actually acknowledge the Trinity. So uh, there is Christian Kabbalists in early modern uh, history were actually adamant that Kabbalah was foreshadowing or announcing Jesus' messiahship, and that Jews had been complicit in effacing the traces of the coming of Jesus. Those Christian Kabbalists used Kabbalah as a tool of conversion to convince Jews that the top three Sfirot represented the Holy Trinity. In response, some Jewish Kabbalists rejected the Sfirot as a form of polytheism. Still, despite the tensions between how Judaism and Christianity understood Kabbalistic ideas, there was also the potential for Kabbalah to serve as a way to unite these religions as well. If you understand Kabbalah as this blueprint of creation, and if there are certain um, texts of Kabbalah that describe Adam, the uh, primordial Adam, the primordial man, are understood to show that there is a, a single origin of humanity, um, and then that Kabbalah shows how actually there is multiple ways to access this uh, primordial truth, then it becomes an instrument for interreligious dialogue. Despite the headaches that Kabbalah created, Jewish thinkers embraced these new ideas. The best-known Kabbalistic work, the Zohar, became canonized within Jewish tradition in a way few other books have. The Zohar, written in Aramaic as a commentary on the Torah, was composed in Spain in the late 13th and early 14th centuries. Scholars generally believe that it was the work of multiple authors and that it took shape over the course of several decades. In its current form, the Zohar comprises multiple compositions that discuss the nature of God and the cosmos, the creation of the world, the nature of evil and sin, and much more. But the Zohar too became ammunition for Christian scholars, who found an affirmation of Christian dogma in its description of the fall and redemption of man. For the most part, medieval Kabbalists lived typical Jewish lives and observed the same rituals as other Jews. What was different for them was why they were doing it. The idea of tikkun, of reparation or repair, came out of the school of thought, though the modern idea of tikkun olam or repairing the world is now more closely associated with social activism than with uniting the ten sefirot. Still, Kabbalists have contributed to some of the Jewish rituals practiced today. A good example, for instance, one that would be familiar to many people, is the practice of reciting the Kabbalat Shabbat service between the afternoon and evening prayers, Mincha and Mariv, on Friday nights. That was innovated by Kabbalists in the 16th century and remarkably was almost universally adopted in the Jewish world. <laughs> Thank you.
hymn Lechadodi, sung to welcome the Sabbath, was composed by Solomon Alkabetz, a 16th century poet and mystic. He lived in Sfat, a center of Jewish mysticism, located in the mountains of Galilee in northern Israel. The words of Lechadodi refer to the Sabbath Kala, or bride, and mystics in Sfat dressed in white like bridegrooms and danced in the fields at sunset to welcome the arrival of the Sabbath. It's hard to imagine someone creating a new Jewish service today that would become so entrenched in Jewish practice. But in the 16th century, Kabbalah was widely embraced. For many centuries, Kabbalistic rituals at least could be added to Jewish practice without the outrage that um, the Enlightenment, for instance, or a certain understanding of Judaism, a Judaism of reason, right? Judaism of the Escala, Jewish Enlightenment created. So those binaries between Kabbalah and reason, Kabbalah and what a reasonable practice of Judaism uh, would entail did not necessarily exist. You just heard Clemence use the word Haskalah. The Haskalah came out of Germany in the late 18th and early 19th century as part of the European Enlightenment movement. It comes from the Hebrew word Sechel, meaning reason or intellect. Its followers, known as Maskilim, believed that Jews had become too culturally and socially isolated, too backwards, and that anti-Semitism would only be overcome through assimilation. As Judaism would become part of the modern movement of the Enlightenment, Kabbalah, this extremely mystical and spiritual body of thought, would encounter some challenges with this new way of seeing the world through a more reasoned and scientific lens. The Enlightenment tried to highlight this notion of Judaism as a religion of reason, a religion that was ethical, that could be arrived to through a reasonable use of human faculties. That is something that led to also a way to caricature um, Kabbalah as a set of antiquated superstitions. In their push towards modernity, the Maskilim wanted to leave the more superstitious aspects of Judaism behind. There is also a rich tradition of Kabbalistic uh, amulets and magic that was highlighted uh, by those who were um, opposed to Kabbalah because they favored a discourse of rationalism. But also, one needs to be reminded of the fact that Christians, um, who sometimes used you know, magic on the, on the side, were also those who emphasized the Jewish magic with all its dark sides. The Maskilim also wanted to set themselves apart from the primarily Yiddish-speaking Jews of the fast-growing Hasidic movement. Hasidism is a spiritual revival movement that began in Eastern Europe in the 18th century. It draws heavily on the teachings of Isaac Luria, a 16th century rabbi and mystic whose creative interpretation of the Zohar influenced all subsequent schools of Kabbalistic thought. The Haskalah would have a huge impact on how Judaism would be viewed and understood by the wider public. It gave birth to the Wissenschaft des Judentums. This was a 19th century movement to apply modern research methods to critically study Jewish literature and culture. The name literally means science of Judaism and translated as Jewish studies. 
The Haskalah and its rejection of Kabbalah led to the development of the field of Jewish academic studies, but the Haskalah was by no means representative of the majority of Jews at the time. There were huge, huge numbers of Jews in Eastern Europe and also in, in North Africa and throughout the Middle East who understood themselves still at that point very Kabbalistically, their approach to Judaism was very inflected with Kabbalistic ideas and discourses. When the Wissenschaft des Judentums scholars are creating an important establishment of Jewish studies in the Western Academy in Central Europe, we still have Eastern European Jews and Jews elsewhere throughout the Jewish world who haven't rejected Kabbalah at all. Kabbalah never became a big part of modern North American Jewish life, but Hartley says that's a historical aberration. Because so many North American Jews are not only Ashkenazi immigrants from Europe, but also have been raised in Jewish movements that still are somewhat inflected with Enlightenment ideas. This is a, a place and time where for many Jews, they kind of are still living in this kind of blip where Kabbalah was somewhat removed from the way that Jews thought about and talked about Judaism and Jewish practice. In the centuries leading up to the Enlightenment, and for Hasidic, Sephardic, and Mizrahi communities today, Kabbalah remains a powerful social force. And ironically, the scholarship that came out of the Haskalah has become an important source of knowledge for Kabbalah practitioners. That's happening even now currently in Jerusalem, where practitioners go to the National Library and access academic studies in order to find Kabbalistic texts that are unpublished, and in some cases they transcribe them and publish them in very religious editions of those books. We've outlined the 18th and 19th century Jewish movements that embraced or rejected Kabbalah, but Clemence points to a third group who saw Kabbalah as a way to bridge this duality of mysticism and reason. You also have a crop of thinkers who see in Kabbalah a way to go past this binary that the uh, Enlightenment had set up, meaning the opposition between rational and the irrational. They thought that there was something beyond reason, that Kabbalah was uniquely equipped to capture, something that could really give a, some insight into how humanity thinks. So a more myth-based understanding of what religious practices are about, and that was not just limited to Judaism, that Kabbalah was, had been able to capture human imagination and a coexistence that Kabbalah could help capture if understood properly. Despite the positive ways that Kabbalah aims to engage with the world and Judaism, there is a darker side to Kabbalah. Some Jews claim that because God gave them the secret knowledge of Kabbalah, that makes them better than all other groups. It promotes the Jewish people and a Jewish soul um, as superior. Jews are these incarnations of God with divine souls, and non-Jews are not. So that's how you have a narrative of Jewish exceptionalism or a very ethnocentric understanding of creation. That also exists. I mean, you cannot gentrify Kabbalah too much the notion that non-Jews have um, inferior souls or animal souls is also present. A religiously based uh, political discourse that would create those bridges is also used by you know, right-wing settlers who actually challenge the, the possibility of equal citizenship with uh, non-Jews in Israel based on those Kabbalistic texts. This negative connotation has contributed to centuries of anti-Semitism. The term Kabbal comes from Kabbalah, 
It entered the English language in the late 16th century, at a time when non-Jews became more aware of Kabbalah. It means a small, powerful group that conspires to establish control, and is still used to imply secret Jewish machinations of world domination. Kabbalah has crossed not only religious barriers, but cultural ones too, even contributing to the development of the idea of the subconscious. One doctrine found in the Kabbalist writings of Isaac Luria is Tzimtzum, meaning contraction or concealment. His idea is that God began the process of creating the world by contracting his Or Ein Sof, his infinite light. In the Kabbalistic narrative, in order for God to create the world, he had to retract himself, herself, themselves, and make space for the other. Luria wrote that carrying out the commandments is an active process of tikkun, of reparation, that would bring God's presence back into the world, and that simtsum is God's way of concealing himself from our consciousness, and that by following the commandments, we become conscious of God's presence within ourselves. The mystical idea of tzimtzum and other Kabbalistic ideas spread beyond Jewish communities and influenced thinkers like German philosopher Friedrich Schelling and the psychoanalysts Sigmund Freud, Carl Gustav Jung, and Jacques Lacan. A few thinkers who went on to influence Jung, for instance, realized that what Schelling was talking about when he first coined the term unconscious was actually Kabbalistic tropes, the symptom, that retraction of the divine. Lacan, for instance, also described the unconscious as a place of the other, of otherness. And so those thinkers realized that at the roots of Schelling's system was his reading of Kabbalah. And then from that, they uh, inferred that there was uh, something about Kabbalah that could describe the unconscious, this nascent scientific concept, and that Judaism and its wisdom and as the blueprint of the world was the place in which the notion of the unconscious had originated. But the founders of psychoanalysis, aware of the connections between Kabbalah and notions of the unconscious, were also wary of tying their ideas to irrational mysticism. The psychologist Pierre Janat coined the term subconscious in order to avoid the connection to the Kabbalistic unconscious. Of course, we can't talk about Kabbalah without talking about the popular revival of Kabbalah in the late 90s and early 2000s. And welcome to 2020. It's the latest spiritual wave to hit Hollywood. Stars are being swept up in the fervor of something called Kabbalah. It comes with red strings attached, bottled water that supposedly has special powers, and enticing claims about love, sex, and money. Jewish and non-Jewish entertainers became adherents of a new school of Kabbalah, most prominently Madonna. I haven't converted to Judaism, and I'm not Jewish in the conventional sense, because the Kabbalah is, um, is a, a belief system that predates religion and predates Judaism as an organized religion. Madonna, Ashton Kutcher, Demi Moore, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, and many others became associated with the Los Angeles-based Kabbalah Center. Philip and Karen Berg founded the organization to spread the teachings of Kabbalah to the masses. 
They also made a fortune from the sale of books, red strings to wear around the wrist, bottles of healing water, and donations. But was this actually Kabbalah, and did it function in the same way the traditional Kabbalistic thought and practices did? I would say the most important aspect um, of the Kabbalah is recognizing that we are all, all one, that there's no such thing as fragmentation. It's such an interesting chapter in the remarkable journey of Kabbalah through Western history, because again, this very sort of specifically Jewish ethnocentric tradition is picked up in the New Age context and is successfully repackaged as a form of ancient wisdom that guides people as they search for personal fulfillment. And Philip Berg and the Kabbalah Center were really successful with that. And of course, yes, Madonna was a really, really important celebrity endorsement of Kabbalah in this way. And there was a lot of significant popular interest, and still is, in this way of thinking of Kabbalah as an ancient wisdom that provides people with access to, they use discourse like light of the creator, how to balance their desire to receive for themselves alone and their desire to give. That notion of desire to receive, the irony is that it was a Marxist Kabbalist, Rav Ashlag, who came up with it, and the Kabbalah Center became this amazing business model, but it is a business model, right? So the irony, the, the rules of history of Marxist-influenced Kabbalists who ushered in this uh, Kabbalah Center is, is fascinating. Right, which is a very successful capitalist um, project from this Marxist uh, capitalist in Jerusalem. <laughs> um, yeah, everything about it is is just really surprising. Yet, and 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 also about the success of um, this as a, a way of talking about and experiencing Kabbalah for people of all different types of backgrounds, and it it's very deliberately not specifically Jewish. It is regarded as a universal wisdom, and it has been very popular and successful. The fascinating thing about Kabbalah, Hartley says, is how these texts can be endlessly reinterpreted over centuries to meet the needs of the people reading them and the times in which they're read. Every historical period involves, including by Jews themselves, involves a creative re-engagement with Kabbalistic texts. Kabbalistic texts are always read creatively and they kind of invite that. Um, so in the, yeah, in the contemporary period, you have everything from extremely right-wing racist discourses and illiberal political platforms advanced by people like Yitzhak Ginsburg in Israel, while at the same time the Jewish renewal movement um, in the United States and Europe and elsewhere also appropriates Kabbalistic ideas. There's Kabbalistic feminisms, there's Kabbalistic environmental theologies. In all of these different ways, Kabbalah is kind of this Rorschach test of Jewish texts and people are able to see in it something that they're looking for. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Sal O. W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation and the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. I'm the lead producer for this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll help support it by going to associationforjewishstudies.org slash podcast to make a donation. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization. It features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org to learn more. See you next time on Adventures in Jewish Studies.